It's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview, Long Island, the law firm of Decalator, Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ. Joining us now is the pride of St. Peter Marion High School in Worcester, Massachusetts, where he played first base and pitched. He went undrafted in the 1977 Major League Baseball draft, was signed as a free agent by the Boston Red Sox. He went on to have a 13-year career in the Major Leagues, playing for the Red Sox, Astros, and St. Louis Cardinals. He currently serves as hitting coach with the AAA Pawtucket Red Sox of the International League. He is a two-time All-Star, as well as a member of the Boston Red Sox Hall of Fame. It is a pleasure to welcome Rich Gedman to Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Rich. Hi, how are you? We're doing great, and joining him on the phone is a longtime friend of the show, who really needs no introduction, as I believe tonight he's actually passed Peter Golenbach's record as the most frequent author <laughs> guest on our show. His latest book, Two Sides of Glory, the 1986 Boston Red Sox, in their own words, features 13 of what many consider one of the best Boston Red Sox team in history, revealing how much that season means to them all. All these years later, it is a thrill to welcome back our friend and favorite guest, Eric Sherman of Sports Talk New York. Welcome, Eric. Well, thank you very much, Mark. It's a pleasure. So, Rich, before we get into the book, I just want to touch on, on some of your amazing career. We mentioned in the open how you went undrafted. On top of that, the Red Sox sent you to the Instructional League to learn to play catcher, where you progressed steadily up the, through the major league, the minor league system. You take a look at the managers on the way up. Rack Slider, uh, who was a second baseman in his career. Tony Torchia, who was a first baseman. Joe Morgan, who was a third baseman, shortstop, and first baseman. So every single infield position but catcher. So I guess the question is, who is the most influential person to you along the way up in your conversion to catcher? Um, I guess some of it was just they allowed me to catch. <laughs> meaning, yeah, I mean, you got to play, so it wasn't somebody watching over you saying you have to be doing this, you have to be doing that, um, which kind of makes it fun that way because you don't know that you're doing something right or wrong sometimes, but it's okay. But as I went up the system, as I went up the system, actually, somebody who really made a, a, a big difference in my career was Mike Rourke. Um, and then a, a player that I played with, and a lot of the players that I played with, um, but the guy, one of the guys in Boston that made a, a significant impact was Jeff Newman. You know, we just took the time to you know, talk about some of the little intricacies of exchange and what's the fastest way to get rid of the ball and things like that, and uh, just talking about how to break the glove even. Hmm. So Mike Rourke talked about balance catcher stance and uh, the ability to move left, right, up and down. And uh, Jeff Newman talked a lot about the, uh, you know, the exchange and, um, and breaking of the glove. Yeah, it's also interesting. And then I learned from the pitches. <laughs> so it's also it's interesting, if you look at that 1977 draft, the fact that there were 81 catchers taken in that draft, of which only nine of those 81 made it to the majors. And of those nine, only the sixth pick overall, Terry Kennedy, played more games in the major leagues as a catcher than you. You know, considering you were undrafted and weren't a catcher, when you hear that, what's the first thought that comes to your mind? 
Um, I, I really don't think about it much. Um, because if you didn't tell me, I wouldn't even pay attention. So, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not—I'm not trying to be wise, honestly and truly, and and I'm not trying to be naive either. I, I think it's a really special feat for an undrafted kid to get to the big leagues. I think it, it was probably a lot easier back then than it is now. Um, but some of it is opportunity and the gracious opportunity that was given to me, um, and obviously the opportunity to play. And so that's that's probably the biggest thing. It's like they they had open minds. They um, they had they had wonderful advice, and they had tremendous patience. Um, it was a time when a young player like me, who ended up getting to the big leagues before his twenty first birthday, um, some of it out of need or necessity for the club. Um, but most of it about the patience that they had, like I said, taking the chance on a kid and giving them the opportunity. So, I mean, I was learning still when I was when I was in the major leagues, and I'm not sure by the time I became a finished product, I I, I went downhill instead of uphill. To tell you the truth, <laughs> the you're the the anti Jacob Degrom, I guess, right? <laughs> so, you know, along your climb up the minor league ladder, you're part of the longest professional baseball game in history. You caught the first nine innings of the 33 inning game between the Red Sox and, and Rochester Red Wings. I know that AJ has some right. questions for, about well, that. Questions. First of all, you caught the first nine innings, but became a 33 inning game. Why did you come out of the game? And how did you, where did you go after that? Were you on the bench and you watched the rest of the game? The other, I guess, what, 32 innings before it got uh, postponed for a month? Uh, what happened? You know, where were you watching the rest of the game? What were you thinking as that game kept on going on and on and on? Well, I'm not sure you want to hear the real truth. Um, because, I mean, let's face it, you're, when it starts to get into the 20 10 innings or 11 innings, you're, you're not really happy that you're still not in there. Because there's nothing you can do except for catch people in the bullpen, and that seemed like once every hour. Um, which made it very difficult to focus and concentrate, just hoping to, to get it over with, to tell you the truth. And I think part of the reason why you have two teams that are trying to end the game uh, with one swing with the wind blowing in um, and pitchers who seem like they pitched some of their best innings in that game, believe it or not. Um, but like I said, it was what it started at 7, didn't end until like 3 o'clock in the morning, something like that. Yeah. Um, and that's just a guess. It's been a long time. And part of the reason why I, I didn't play was like a pitch hit for in the ninth inning, the bottom of the ninth inning. Uh, they brought in a lefty with a guy in scoring position. And um, so I, you know, I, I was resigned to the bench and I just did whatever I could to stay warm and help out wherever I was needed. It wasn't the day where we had three catchers or four catchers. It was the day that you have two and one caught in the bullpen and the other one played and vice versa. So two other quick things before we move on. One, in terms of stay warm, I read some reports that players actually burned broken bats in the dugout to stay warm. Did that? Actually... Knows there, was, there was a bunch of them. <laughs> and, and the, the other yes, thing... that did happen. That's a true story. And the other thing was there was a game actually at 11 o'clock the next morning. So how hard was it to come back and be at the ballpark for that 11 o'clock game the next morning? Um, again, you don't really think about it much. It's like, here's where you got to be. I think we had to be at the field at 11. I think the game was probably 12 o'clock or 1 would make sense. I think it was Easter Sunday. So we had to be at the park, I think, at 11. 
Amazing. So, you know, one of the things you reveal in Eric's great book, Two Sides of Glory, the 1986 Boston Red Sox, in their own words, is how playing for the Red Sox and playing at Fenway was like Disneyland due to the fact that you grew up a Red Sox fan. You mentioned the players you idolized, uh, the ones that you would imitate in your backyard. And the first two names that you mentioned in consecutive order are Carl Yastrzemski and Carlton Fisk. So I'm wondering what it's like to make your major league debut, pinch hitting for one of your idols, and then in your second season, you are now the primary catcher for the Red Sox following an 11-year run by Carlton Fisk. Well, it's very difficult to answer compound questions because I'm pretty simple-minded when it comes to that stuff. So you have to remind me of the second one after I get through with the first, okay? <laughs> okay, you got um, it. Kyle number one. I mean, I'm not, I wasn't really a big idol guy, but he was like my favorite guy. I mean... The 67 team, I was eight years old, and, I mean, he just was incredible, and they built him up to be such a special, special player and win the Triple Crown. That stuff doesn't happen. And, I mean, if it wasn't for somebody as special as Ted Williams being in the Boston organization, um, then Yastrzemski is the greatest player of all time that wore a Boston uniform. Um, so to actually get a chance to play with him um, was wonderful, but I think there were so many other things that happened for me because of him. Um, my first at bat in the big leagues, you know, the people say that I pitch hit for Kai Stremski. I think Kai Stremski wanted it that way. Um, he had a, his injured, you know, he had a, a back issue. And I think when he decided that he wasn't going to be able to play, I think he told the manager, he said, listen, why don't you let the kid pitch yet or let the kid play today? And, you know, lo and behold, the manager gave me an opportunity to come in and, you know, think about it. The first I've had in the big leagues or the major leagues, you get to hit for what is your childhood idol and somebody that you look up to so tremendously that actually he had something to do with you actually getting to the plate. So um, I've always had fond memories of him because I got to play with him three years after that, and he was a wonderful supporter and just a, a great, great baseball player. But not only that, he was a wonderful man. Um, and, and I hate to break it to you. I, I mean, I, I'm I'm going to throw some shade on Massachusetts because that's what New Yorkers do. I mean, he's such a great guy because he's from Long Island. Had he been from Worcester, maybe he wouldn't have let you pinch hit. But <laughs> but just got to throw that in there. Sorry. No, no. I okay, I'll buy it. <laughs> I'll buy it. If you're selling it, I'll buy it for today. <laughs> so, so, or at least for the next couple minutes. <laughs> so what about you know replacing another one of your idols the following season as a primary catcher after? idolizing Carlton Fisk for all those years. Well, the neat thing about Fisk was he has a, he had a tremendous work ethic in just the way he could grab hold of the game. I mean, 75 World Series, you know, he was he was instrumental in that team getting there and certainly having a, a good chance to win. And nobody, uh, nobody will ever forget the big home run that he got. Um, but one of the things that I thought about is he, like, demanded, he demanded uh, attention. You know, he, he, made people focus, and what a tremendous competitor. Um, but the one thing I always remind people when people say, well, geez, you came in after him. I was not the guy that was supposed to be. Um, the guy before me for a brief period of time was Gary Allenson. And Gary Allenson previously was the, was the International League MVP. There's your, there's your guy that's going to be the Red Sox catcher. Dave Smith, who is with, in AAA with me, he and 
and Gary Allenson are the Red Sox catchers in 1981. One of them or both of them got hurt and I get called up in um, early May. And what ends up happening is I didn't really start off very well, but they were patient with me. I, I was hitting, I, I can remember in Yankee Stadium, I was one for 17. And it's very humbling when you look up on that big scoreboard and your batting average is 059. And somebody says, um, you can't even hit your bat average. And I'm going, I don't know if three hits will get me there. You know what I mean? Holy cow. So um, anyways, push comes to shove. I, I got an opportunity to, uh, to be like a, a platoon type catcher. And um, it wasn't until 1984, um, which was three, three years removed, um, that I actually was technically the, the number one catcher. So. You know, it's interesting because uh, Two Sides of Glory could also be a chapter just about your individual 1986 as you experience some of the highlights of your career. You're the battery mate for Roger Clemens on April 29th when he strikes out 20 batters in a game against the Mariners. That sets a, a major league single game strikeout record nine inning game and your put out, 20 put outs of the game set the American League record. Um, the next day, you have 16 more for a total of 36 in two days, which is the most for a catcher in two consecutive days. You're selected to your an all-star game for the second time in two years. You win as a member of the Red Sox, the American League East, beating out your hated rival, the New York Yankees, on top of it. You win the ALCS in dramatic fashion to make the World Series. Looking back on 86 prior to the World Series, which of those moments is the one that you look back on with the most pride? I, I'm not really a prideful guy. I think outwardly, I think like I think I was. The, the game has a funny way of humbling you. So I look back and in awe sometimes of some of the things that you're talking about. Um, the neat part, I I still look at. I got a chance to play in the major leagues. I'm a kid from Worcester, Massachusetts. Um, I'm not supposed to get there. So I experienced I experienced some things that are not realistic to most people. Um, to sit there and have individual things, I, I yeah, I, I did some of those things. They did happen. I was part of that. I, it wasn't usually because of me. It was usually because of somebody else. And, you know, the, the, the special games of Roger and Hersky, I mean, to be a part of those, to be their battery mate, if you will. Um, okay, my ego gets involved once in a while when I sit there and I say, well, if you really think about it, I remember catching Roger that year when he thought I was good. So... You know, it's, it's kind of funny because, I mean, he had a wonderful career. But during that period of time, like, I, I was the leader of the pitching staff, not not the young pitchers that were on that team. And I'm not saying it was me only. I was I got help from the bench, from Renee Latchman, who, who was a manager with Seattle, who had an awful lot of stats about different teams and how they were pitching them. And so the scouting reports were well advanced for things that I had. Um, had the opportunity to have before. And so you know, it was a wonderful relationship that the pitching staff and I had, but it wasn't anything individual. It was, it was always their credit when they won. And, you know, I tried to make sure that they didn't get hammered when we lost. No, it's interesting. A, a few questions back, you mentioned Colton Fisk's iconic home run. And, and it's funny. And obviously you will obviously remember this because you grew up a, a Red Sox fan. Um, but, Colton Fisk's home run never happens without Bernie Carbo. 
Um, people, right. forget, a lot of people forget that Bernie Carbo hit the three run home or pinch hit home run to tie it up. That led to the home run. And a lot of Red Sox fans, you know, remember for sure Dave Henderson's and Don Bella's home run, but you had a really amazing day that day as well. You know, getting on base all five times. You were actually the tying run on Henderson's home run. You know, the, and the Hindus gets the winning run. But what do you remember about that game? And you know, it's funny because without you, that comeback never really happens. Well, there's no doubt that it was a good day. I'm, I'm not <laughs> going to sit here and tell you that it wasn't. Um, but it, it was. It was more. It was more what we were trying to do as a group. Um, it was said that after we lost, we just got to find a way to get it back home. And believe it or not, I was just looking in the media guide for 2021 and was going through the scores of the games in California and then going on to um, looking at the World Series games of 1986 and just remembering that, wow, we, I, I, I forgot that we scored four runs in the ninth inning to go up 6-5 and then for them to come back and tie it. And then turn around, score two run, uh, score two innings later to end up winning. Uh, I believe it was six five or seven six or something like that. Um, but our goal was to get it home. And for some reason, it was if we got it home, boys, they're not going to beat us. There's no way they can come across country and beat us in our home park twice. And it was incredible because you know the following game, I think it was. Uh, like 13 to one or something like that, or 13 to two. And then the last game was like eight to one. And our big guys stepped up, Rice and Evans and homers in that game seven. And, you know, we kind of cruised on to the win. Uh, I mean, it was incredible stuff. Just, uh, I, I often, uh, I'll chuckle sometimes when people talk about Dave Henderson. And, and I'll, I remember him so vivid um, doing some great things in the playoffs. And I reminded him that I was his caddy, that I set everything up for him. And uh, he just kind of would laugh with that beautiful smile that he had, you know. And um, you know, he was he, he was a, a person that grabbed hold of moments. And he certainly uh, became endeared to Boston fans, uh, certainly during that playoff run. So for those people that are just tuning in, we have Rich Gedman and Eric Sherman. And if you haven't asked, heard me ask a question to Eric yet, it's not because I'm just totally ignoring him. If you are a fan of the show, Eric was on last week and we spoke in detail. But I did want to ask Eric, you know, along with this interview, because I had a, a, a question I wanted to ask him because I, I felt in reading Rich's chapter in particular that, you know, in some respects, not only could you have gotten royalties on the book, but I, I think you might have been able to charge Rich a, a $125 to $150 an hour because it seemed it was very therapeutic for Rich. And the, the, one, thing, <laughs> the one thing that really struck me, all right, and it, it really blew me away, and I want to ask you directly about this, Eric. At the end of the interview, Rich actually thanked you that day saying that you probably helped him to become a better coach that day um, in the way that, you know, that you guys talked and everything, you know, when you hear a subject, a major league baseball player, a coach, what's the first thing that comes through your mind when you hear that? Well, you don't hear it very often, uh, but I, I will say this. So this was, this is my seventh book and 
five of those books, I've been the co-author. And you get so close to the subjects. For some reason, um, you know, the players that I interview, um, they're very comfortable in talking to me. Maybe it's, it's because I'm a good listener or because I know what the heck I'm talking about. I don't know what it is, but I really have this ability to get these guys to open up. Um, with Rich, you know, I couldn't wait to interview him. I was so looking forward to it. I knew it would go great. And I'll tell you why. You know, everyone says, well, you know, you're going to talk to Clemens and Boggs and Rice and Evans, you know, the, the either the Hall of Famers or, you know, guys that maybe should be in the Hall of Fame but aren't. But with Rich, you're talking about a guy that, you know, he was a Boston area guy, you know, grew up with the near misses of 67 and 75 and 78, you know, as a fan of the team, someone that really got it, you know, they understood what it meant to be a new Englander and a Red Sox fan. And now, I mean, he had the chance to be a part of that team to end the 68 year drought. And I knew it would be emotional for him. How, how couldn't it be? Um, you know, Rich, his entire life, grew up, you know, in, you know, bleeding Red Sox red. <laughs> so, so that's what I was really looking forward to. I knew it would be emotional. He's still part of the organization today. And there, there isn't anybody that I know that that's more Red Sox than Rich Gedman. So, you know, of, of course, you know, the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, within that two week period. And what you alluded to earlier, Mark, you know, Rich went four for four in game five, which was easily the greatest victory that the Red Sox had since game six of the 75 World Series. Right. Um, and, you know, the other Red Sox couldn't touch Mike Witt that day. And Gedman goes four for four. They bring in Lucas and, and he hits Gedman with a pitch. Uh, and then they bring in Don, Donnie Moore and the rest is history with, you know, with Henderson's home, home run. But, um, but, you know, but to answer your question again, um, I, I'm to a lot of these uh, athletes that I interview and, and do books with, I am their, their psychologist, their priest, their best friend. Um, and they tell me things that they don't even tell their wives a lot of times. So, so I can't explain it um, other than the fact that I think that they sense that I really care and that they trust me that I'm going to tell the story the right way. And, and, you know, I think that's the biggest reason why I've been able to continue writing these books, because I think word gets around that I'm going to do the right thing by these guys. Absolutely. It comes across. Rich, I have one question not related to the book. Um, it's related to a different book. Ron Darling raised a lot of eyebrows here with his 108 stitches, loose threads, ripping yarns, and the darnest characters from my time in the game. Uh, according to him, um, he felt that the World Series turned because of Lenny Dykstra being on deck and, and uttering the most vile things to oil Cam Boyd. Um, you were the closest person to that on deck circle. Did you hear anything or, or, you know, is there anything to that story from your point of view? Um, if there, if I heard it, I would have known, you know what I mean? I, I don't, I, I don't want to say that I heard it because I didn't hear it. 
because I, I actually know Lenny, and we actually played on the same team in Venezuela together. And uh, he knows that I wouldn't put up with that. I never heard him say anything. I'm not saying, again, I think it's the same thing with the John McNamara, Roger Clemens thing, where if I would have saw that, I, you know, you can attest to it. Um, so what you do is you usually have someone's opinion. I did not hear Lenny say that stuff because I would have been pretty upset if I did. Yeah. I, um, I, and I, Oil I, a pretty special guy, let me tell you. Right, absolutely. And, uh, yeah, yeah, that would have bothered me. Yeah, and uh, you know what? And if Oil did hear it, listen, I think he faced Lenny 24 more times in his career, and there was never a brushback. So, yeah, that's. I just wanted to get your take on it. Listen, guys, thank you. I'm, so I'm, not, I'm not saying that's not true. No, I, I uh, no, I know. Right, I, I agree. I mean, it's, you know. there's one other thing. If I could quickly just say about Eric, that you know, you were wondering how come what makes him so special. It's like he talked about stuff that only the players that were there would know. And, and so, therefore, you, you knew that he did his work, he did his homework, he did his due diligence, and he knew it as well as the players that played it. That's how you can open up to somebody. There's a trust made there because somebody took the time to really have a feel of it. Yeah, and, it, it and, and certainly and looked at it in the right perspective. Yeah, and it comes well, across you, in every one of, of Eric's book, and that's why uh, – listen, Peter Goldenbach's a very special person to us, but tonight Eric has surplanted him for the, the, the most appearances <laughs> by an author on Sports Talk New York in the 15-year history. Guys, thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, Rich, thanks so much for enforcing how good uh, Long Island guys are to people from Massachusetts. <laughs> and uh, everyone, go pick up the book. It is an absolute amazing read, as is every book by Eric Sherman. Eric, thanks for your time as well tonight. Oh, thank you so much, guys. I really okay. appreciate it. You got to have a great Take night. Care, Stay safe, everybody.